It is a privilege for me to invite our guest speaker today. I've served in ministry for over 20 years now myself. I'm officially an old guy. And um, along the way, when you're in a life path like mine, you learn a lot from others you have the privilege of working alongside. When we first came to Comox in 2008, I had the great joy of learning from and working with Dave Postel, who's upstairs today. And I saw in Dave the heart of a true pastor, and that was so helpful for my own formation. Years have passed since then, and ministry has brought us through a few places. We're so thrilled to be back here in Comox. Prior to being in Comox, Laura and I, as many of you know, were serving at a church, Christian Life Assembly in the Lower Mainland, where um, we were brought onto a team by their lead pastor, Derek Hamry. And when I joined their staff, I had been in ministry for 15 years, and uh, I had done four years of Bible college, 15 years of ministry where you actually learn stuff on the fly as you go. But in the three and a half years that I worked with Derek Hamry, I learned more about leadership than all my ministry and education combined. Derek is a first-class Christian leader. He pastors an excellent, influential church right here in British Columbia, and his influence brings impact to Canada. Um, he's got a great history of serving in Bible colleges, in churches in different parts of Canada. And as I shared at our camp last night when I introduced him, not only is he a great speaker, gifted leader, great pastor, it is a privilege for me to call him a friend. And it is a privilege for me to introduce him to you to bring the word today. So would you join me in welcoming to our stage, Pastor Derek Hamry. Thank you so much um, for that very kind introduction. I said last night that it's been 30 years since I preached in this church. Uh, 30 years ago, I was the director of a ministry and mission school called Omega at Summit Pacific in uh, Abbotsford. And, and so on that occasion, I, I got to come here and tell you about that program. And then um, those were the days of the morning services and the evening services. And so morning was here in Comox, and then up to Campbell River for the evening service. So I'm absolutely delighted to be back. <laughs> 30 years. And great to be at camp last night and to be with uh, many of you there and then more of you this morning. Uh, we miss Mike and Laura at CLA. I oversee 80 staff and nobody is missed more than Mike and Laura. Uh, Mike was my associate, um, just an office away, and we would go for walks. He was, he was cathartic for me. <laughs> and Laura was so well received in quarterbacking worship and gathering uh, at the Langley campus, and we just miss you. But we're thrilled to be able to, to uh, see you here and to hear about a flourishing church in the Comox Valley. And we're delighted to be able to be here. Now, Clay, uh, I see, is here. And um, so my son, all three of my kids, can you imagine 
developing a program in your 20s and then all of your children go through that discipleship children, uh, program decades later. That's what happened to us. All of our children went through Omega. I had no idea that I was developing a program that my children would actually go through. Uh, it was a bit of a wild experience. Anyways, my son Joel was there and he met Clay and uh, uh, enjoyed friendship. And so it's a delight to be able to be here with you guys as well and just to see how long, how long have you been? Two and a half years. I thought it was six months. Okay. No, I didn't. I knew, I knew it was like that. Um, so just delightful to see your staff and, and Dave and just uh, to be able to make connections. So I, I want to today, because you're in this series, and I love the book of Revelation. It's a really important book. So I want to do three things. First of all, I want to talk about the, the book in general because you're going on like a six-month journey uh, in which you're going to be having sermons from this important book. So I want to just talk about that for a second. Then, and then I want to talk about the text. So we'll open up to the Smyrna text, which is found in Revelation chapter 2. And then uh, I'll extrapolate for quick points and, and we'll be done. Um, let me start by commending you, Mike, and, and church for doing this journey. This is a really important journey. I want to say right from the top that what Job is to, the, to those who are suffering, and you know how, how beneficial Job has been to the, the suffering ones, um, encouraging perseverance. What Job was for the suffering saint Revelation is for the persecuted church. And there are more Christians persecuted today in the church of Jesus Christ globally than any time in our history. In fact, many churches in North America take a day in November to talk about the persecuted church. And so this just becomes a really important letter for the persecuted church. I also want to say that there is no more important principle. You, you should write this down. You should have it actually in your Bible uh, when you begin to read Revelation. This is the number one principle. Revelation cannot mean something different to you than it did to the original audience. It is not a book to explain Gorbachev's mark on his head. It is not about you. <laughs> now, it does have application, for sure. Uh, the prophecy may have some secondary meanings, for sure. But the primary responsibility of a Bible reader of the book of Revelation is, what did this mean to the original audience? The original audience understood this unusual letter. And your job is to understand what they understood and not make it something that it is not. And the great sin of the 20th century church has been that we've made it something that it's not. So as you make the journey, that's the number one rule that I would give you. What is original intent? That is your job. Um, eschatology is the study of the final things. And so there are a few 
glimpses behind the curtain into final things in this book. Now, most of the book was written in light of the Roman Empire, a fledgling church, and a church under persecution that desperately needed encouragement. Um, but in, in eschatology, I just want you to walk humbly. When you study end times, uh, don't, please don't be arrogant because they haven't happened and we actually don't know how they're going to unroll. I, I, I am often reminded of the Jewish eschatology, okay? So when Jesus came, the Jews, like you, good practicing Jews, um, good religious people, they had an eschatology. They were really strong. They knew it. They, they had memorized it. They, they walked on it. And they all got it wrong. I mean, 99% of them missed Jesus. They totally, so that's my encouragement to you, is when it comes to eschatology, walk softly. Walk humbly. There's 2,000 years of various views on things. But don't miss the primary purpose of the book, which is worship and perseverance and allegiance and hope and triumph of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That, that there is a victory of good over evil. And eternity wins. And we started this book in a garden. We end this book in a garden. And we end on the right side of history. Don't miss the forest for all the trees. So, um, John wrote this book. So the John of the Gospels, the John of the Epistles, the John that inherited Mary and lived in Ephesus wrote this book. We were just in Ephesus. So, can you imagine having a church with Mary in it? Welcome to our Christmas Eve service, folks. We're just going to ask Mary if she would come and remind us of the story. <laughs> so, Mary lived with John in Ephesus, and, um, and John pastored the Ephesus church as well as the seven churches of Asia Minor had influence in the whole church, but then was imprisoned um, in, a, in an island called Patmos. Now, I'm going to talk about that in just a moment, but uh, I want to just kind of say, if you read the Gospel of John, you will see uh, seven miracles, sometimes called the seven signs of John. You'll see the seven messages of John. John liked the number seven because seven is a number of completion. It's a number of perfection. So he writes... The Gospels in that way. Interestingly, he does the same in the Revelation. So he talks seven churches. And then after that, he talks about seven seals. And then seven trumpets. And then seven bowls of wrath. So he likes seven because it's a metaphorical number for completeness and perfection. Um, for John, he understood that Jesus was in the center of the church. And that Christ uh, was the one delivering this. And, and so we get this saying, and sometimes we use it in the 21st century. If you have ears to hear, if you have eyes to see, well, that comes from this material, this inspired material. Um, let's, can I show the map? 
Do we have that? Um, so this is, there we go. All right, so this is, um, this is modern day Turkey. All of the seven churches are in Turkey. Um, and there's the little island of Patmos. So if you ever do a Mediterranean cruise, you'll probably cruise through this. Now, so John is now in prison. He's an old man. He's been put in prison. The emperor doesn't want to kill him because he doesn't want to make him like this heroic martyr. So he puts him in exile on a, on a rock quarry called Patmos. And, but when John looks across the sea, he sees the seven churches that he loves. And, and so he then is inspired by the spirit to write this apocalyptic letter. Let me say something about apocalyptic literature because it's the least familiar literature that you, that you, we don't have it today. So the Bible's made up of eight or nine different genres. So I can say law and you're like, oh yeah, criminal code, Canada, law, got it. Okay, that's Moses. I can say history and you go, yeah, I just read a book on Churchill. Yeah, see, we got it. We understand the Chronicles. We understand the Kings. We understand Acts, history. We understand the prophets, they're preachers. We understand the Gospels, the story of Jesus. We understand the letters, letters to the church, including this one. But this is the only letter that is apocalyptic. It was a, it was a type of literature 2,000 years ago that went out of style, kind of like shag carpet. So it was useful and nice, and then thought, nah, we don't, we don't really need it anymore. So apocalyptic literature is tough for us. It's, um, it's metaphorical, it's, it's big, it's, it's symbolic. But they understood it. The best apocalyptic literature that you can find today is a political cartoon. If you look in um, the Vancouver Sun or province and you see a political cartoon, and it's a cartoon, it's large, it's exaggerated, it's a symbol. When you see a donkey or an elephant related to Washington, D.C., you're not thinking donkey, elephant. You're thinking Democrats, Republicans, and everybody knows it. There's a symbol so embedded that you know. No one has to explain the cartoon to you. No one needed to explain the cartoon to these people. When they saw, heard, understood the beast, the beast was always political. It was always a government. And so these symbols of apocalyptic literature are, are for them. And you need to find out what did they mean. When John is on Patmos, he's trying to get a letter out to them to encourage and instill hope so he embeds it in apocalyptic literature so the Romans don't understand it and they pass it through the authorities and it gets to the mainland. That's why it's apocalyptic. And then the order of these, the, the Turkey postal system had a donkey that did the system. It went to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira. So the, the postal system was a circle. So who do you think gets the first letter? Ephesus, the largest and the most important regional uh, city. And then, and then it goes in, in the order of the postal system. Um, okay, so, so what, if you go to Ephesus today, 
um, it's brilliant. It's, it's preserved. Kilometers of main street with political buildings and this fantastic library that rivals like Alexandria. And then there's the Acropolis and then there's the, the little theater where um, Paul caused some problems and got tossed out of town. It's all there. It's all there. You can see it. You can sit in the very place where Paul got thrown out. But if you go to Smyrna, 60 kilometers north, um, Smyrna's not there. But what is there is Izmir. Izmir is the third largest city of Turkey. It's a massive, important port in the country of Turkey. And uh, many ships stop in Izmir. Certainly they pass Izmir just like they pass Comox. And the church there has been almost completely wiped out. There were two primary, uh, primary enemies. I gotta get moving here. Um, there are two primary enemies to the church in Smyrna, unlike some of the other places. So the first one is the cult worship of, of the emperor. And that was real all over. So there were, there were temples to the Caesar. And that was a problem because allegiance was demanded. Who is Lord? And I'd ask you that today. Who is Lord? Curios, the word Lord, uh, was the emperor. He was the Lord. And so you you respected that. You you worshipped the Caesar. Or maybe one of the many Greek or Roman pantheon gods. And those temples are still in Ephesus. And a couple of them still are in Smyrna, in Izmir. Um, Okay, so the the worship of Caesar was big because if you said, oh no, Christ is Lord, Jesus is Lord, you you sang it today, um, that would get you imprisoned, tortured, and, and maybe killed. So that was a problem. That was the number one problem. Second problem, though, was that of all of these seven cities, the largest Jewish remnant was in Smyrna. More Jews than any of the other cities. And so Paul would have, as his practice, gone to the Jews first. And the Jews rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they were incited by the enemy to become antagonistic towards anyone who said, Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is Lord. And so first it's emperor worship. And then the second thing in Smyrna is uh, the the large Jewish community that would um, attack the church. Smyrna's beautiful, just like Comox, just like the Comox Valley. It's lush, lots of fruits and vegetables and great weather. It was beautiful. Um, It's about the same size as the Comox Valley maybe 100,000 people. Ephesus was twice that. Ephesus was like 200,000. But Smyrna was like Comox, Courtney, Cumberland. And it, it kind of had the feel of your community too. And now I want to go to the text. So um, your, what's your job 
over the next number of months in reading the book of Revelation? Understanding original intent. What did this mean for the original audience? Do not jump to theories and ideas that you got from a televangelist, please. Look at it from the point of view of John and the seven churches. Okay, so this is my assignment today. Thank you very much. I actually had a different message, and I phoned Mike, and I said, hey, Mike, this is what I'm thinking for camp, and this is what I'm thinking for Sunday morning, and he goes, did you read the last paragraph of my email? <laughs> mm, maybe not. What was that about again? You're preaching the second church of Asia Minor. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, I'll get that uh, done this week. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, two, Revelation 2, verse 8. The angel to the church at Smyrna write, These are the words of him, so this is Jesus, who is first and last, who died and came back to life. That's an important line there, came back to life, because some of these people are going to die. Well, we're all going to die. But Jesus wants to remind you that he is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. There is no death as a final victory for those who are covered by the blood of the, of the Lamb and filled with the Spirit of God. I grew up in a funeral home. Can you believe that? It's true. My, my dad owned funeral homes. And back in the late 60s, you lived in the funeral home. How weird is that? Think Adam's family. That's me. <laughs> Imagine bringing my wife there. Hey, this is our business. It didn't go over. So Jesus wants you to remember first and last resurrection from the dead right from the beginning of this letter to Smyrna. I know your afflictions. Uh, which actually result in poverty. Mike, come here for a sec. So I want, this is a really important word, affliction, circle it. Um, it's the Greek word thalipsis. It's used 50 times in the New Testament. And you can translate it affliction, trial, tribulation, suffering, pressure, pain. This is affliction. Put out your hand. This is affliction. Pressure. That's the Greek word. So if I do this, or like those people last night, what was that little thing? Last camper standing, yeah. And the arms start to wiggle because they're weak. That's thalipsis. Way to go. <laughs> You're putting your congregation under thalipsis, Mike. So you, you get the point. When God, because he cares for you, puts on the pressure it's to build muscle. It's to build muscle. It's not because he doesn't like you. He wants you strong and courageous. So he's going to exert pressure. The word affliction is actually uh, the word that they used for the, for the press that would crush the olives. So when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane is oil press. It's an olive grove. It's a, it, Jesus was being 
pressurized. He was being crushed. And, and he, he, he cried tears and sweat blood in the process of affliction. So Jesus knows all about affliction. And so he says here to this church, he says, I know your affliction, uh, which results in poverty. And yet you're rich. This is the upside down kingdom of, the, of Jesus. The last will be first. You think you're poor. So here's the thing. The Jews and the, and the temple worship of Caesar and the pagan gods, that was making them poor. There was high racism against the Christians, keeping them poor and underdeveloped. Um, but you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and they are not. They are from the synagogue of Satan. Some of you are like, oh, gee, that's hot. Um, yeah, but it's not anti-Semitic. This is an actual statement of reality. The Jews, their faith had been hijacked by the enemy and was now being used by the enemy to crush that which is good and godly and right and perfect and light in the midst of darkness. And so he says, those who are of the synagogue, everyone would know what that meant, of Satan. And they're like, oh, ooh. really, Jesus? Yes, really. Really, they are the ones who are crushing you and they have nothing to do with God. Sometimes we think it's God who is out to rob, kill, and destroy us. It's not. It's the enemy. And your deliverance is a deliverance that will come in timing. So, synagogue of Satan, verse 10 do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. There's thalipsis, there's pressure, there's trial. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. One of the most difficult things in Revelation is the understanding of numbers, because they are not real. They are metaphorical. And so 10 days simply means it's not going to be very long. You're going to be put in prison, but it's probably not very long. Then he goes on and says, be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you a crown of life. And then here comes those famous words. I often pray this in our green room before I'm going out before our congregation. God, give us ears to hear today by your spirit. And then it ends with, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Per, here's the first point. Now we'll end with just four extrapolated points. First point is this. I, I want you to know that Jesus is in the midst of the church. In Revelation 1, Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. Jesus is in the midst of his church, whatever the church is going through. And... Um, Typically, there are going to be three things in all seven churches. There's going to be, first of all, affirmation. Yahoo! Way to go, Comox! And then there's going to be correction. Mm, uh, hmm, Comox, this I don't like. 
And then there's going to be a promise. This is the, the, this is the way it works in the seven churches. Affirmation, correction, promise. What's interesting is that Smyrna is the only church that has no correction. There's no correction. He just says, I know what you're going through. Hang on, you'll get a crown. It's very unique, very unusual in this book. You know, God is with you. Whatever you are going through, wherever you are at, individually, as a family, in this church, God is standing in the midst, not just with knowledge, but with compassion. Remember uh, Sarah's friend, her dad died. And she was traumatized by it. She lived in Lethbridge. So Sarah immediately went out to Lethbridge to be with her friend and she called her. Hi, hi, I'm here. Oh, I know, Sarah, I know. You're here for me. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And Sarah's like, no, no, I'm here. I'm, I'm here. I know, Sarah, I know, you're, you're here. No, I'm here, I'm here in Lethbridge. Where is your home? <laughs> like sometimes we just think, oh, he's with us, and it's like a theory. But no, he, he's with us. He's here in the midst of the worship, in the midst of the crying, in the midst of the agony, in the midst of the pressure, in the midst of the tribulation, in the midst of the prayer, in the midst of the word. He's here through his spirit. He's here. Oh, I know you're here. No, I'm really here. And I think we just need to acknowledge that. Second thing I want to say today is that he knows. He knows. It says in our text, I know. I know the affliction, the pressure, the thalipsis. I know the circumstances that have caused your poverty. I know that this is because of the synagogue of Satan. I know who's behind the curtain. I know what you're thinking. I know, I know, I know. See, God is, this is what makes him God, omnipresent, omnipotent, all-powerful, and omniscient, all-knowing. He knows. You don't have to hide your addiction. You don't have to hide your bad attitude. You don't have to hide your rough patch. You don't have to hide. He knows. And he is there. I want Sarah to come uh, and introduce herself. This is Sarah Lee. This is my wife. And um, so I want her to introduce herself because there's a little story that she often tells. And I think, oh, this, this is exactly what I'm talking about today when we talk about God knowing. She's a missionary kid, and I just want you, Sarah, to introduce yourself. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to say that it is great to be here. And Mike and Laura, we still haven't recovered. I'm just saying, we have not recovered from your departure. And we're still sad, but we're happy for all of you because you get to have them. Okay, so yes, what a blessing it is for Comox. And we're, we're okay, we'll be okay. okay. 
so I was born and I grew up um, in the Canadian north, far north. My parents were missionaries, uh, Ken and Sarah Gates, and uh, my dad ran a hospital um, and a mission in a place called Hay River, Northwest Territories, if anybody's ever heard of that. It's a 12-hour drive straight north from Edmonton, pretty much, um, on the shores of the Great Slave Lake. And so together with Christian nurses and doctors, my parents um, planted 12 churches up the Mackenzie River to the Arctic Circle. And uh, it was into this unique kind of atmosphere that, um, that I was born and raised. And, you know, I can look back now in my old age and see the richness of that heritage and what those people, my parents, but the, all those nurses and doctors that worked in the hospital and gave of their salaries to plant those churches, I can see um, how much that gave me such a great foundation and heritage. But at the time, as a little kid and a young teenager, I didn't see the richness. What I felt was unseen. You know, the Arctic, the North, is very vast. If anyone's ever been up there, it's massive. And there's not a lot of people. And uh, a lot of the year, it's dark and it's cold. And uh, like literally dark, you know, for most of the day in the, in the winter. And as a kid, I felt just like nobody saw me and nobody knew me. I was this little tiny speck in the vastness of the North. And um, I know now that that's not true. I know it's not true that God saw me there in the North, this little tiny kid. He saw me and he knew me. And even when I went down some paths with people, was influenced by, you know, some people that weren't good, weren't good for me. God was there, and he knew, and he saw, and he was watching over my life. And I was not unseen. And am I anybody special? No, I'm no different than you. I was reminded of it today when we were singing what a personal God he is. It's not because I'm some entitled person that he plucked me out of there, because he did. He spoke to my parents, and my parents knew our 30 years in the north is coming to an end, and it happened to be right when I needed to get out and to be rescued from some very dangerous and dark paths that I was on. So we ended up in Kelowna. I met Derek. We're, I, I'm in a church now with a thriving youth group, and I was rescued. Why? Because he saw me, because he's a personal God. And he knows me. And he said, I know, I know. I know what you were doing. I saw where you were going. And I stepped in. And you know, that is true for you. I don't know what's going on in the lives of the people of Comox Church today. But I can tell you for sure that God is so personal 
for you and for your circumstances. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows about your kids. He knows about your marriage. And um, that's, the, you know, that's the point I think that Derek's trying to make today, that God knows. We're never unseen. No matter who you are or where you live or where you come from, you're not unseen and God knows you and he knows your, your circumstances. Amen. And so, two things. He knows and he says to you, do not fear. Don't fear. Have faith in your circumstances right now, whoever you are, whatever you're going through, have faith. In the text, what you're about to suffer. One of the most uh, known um, persecutions in Smyrna was the bishop, Polycarp. So Polycarp was led to Christ by John, discipled by John, and became the bishop of Smyrna. And when this letter came to Smyrna, John was saying to Polycarp, hang on, don't fear. Because Polycarp would be arrested. He would be imprisoned, persecuted, and put to death in Smyrna. Jesus says, have faith in me, hope in me, endure in your circumstances. Because you will receive, and this is the last thing, a promise, a victor's crown. You will go through the valley of the shadow and you will come out the other side. Nothing can hurt you. Nothing can get through my sieve that I haven't approved. You're going to come out. And you're going to come out with character and love. And you're going to come out with fruitfulness. And you're going to come out with a victor's crown. This means you're rich even when you feel poor. This means that you're first even when you feel last. This means that you're whole even though you feel dismembered. The fullness of God comes to you. And the second death cannot hurt you. Timothy, here's the words of Paul at the end of 2 Timothy. The time has come for my departure. I fought the fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there's in store for me. I can't even count how many funerals I've been to. Hundreds. If I wanted to hang out with my dad, I had to do funerals. Didn't matter if I was 70, 17, or 37. And then when I became a pastor, I love, I love funerals. Where, oh death, is your victory? Where, oh death, is your sting? My friends, you're on the right side. God has something beautiful in store for you in this dispensation and in the one to come so hang on endure would you stand with me I want to pray God's endurance into your life endurance has two parts there's the passive side of endurance which is waiting we call it patience 
It's passive. You sit on your deck, you pray, you wait patiently, passively. But then there's the, there is the non-passive side. We call it long-suffering. And you put up with, you carry the burden. You keep going to work. You keep dealing with the difficult person. You endure. Today, this is the key message to Smyrna. By the grace of God, endure all circumstances with hope. He's with you. He knows he's your deliverer. I'd like you to do something for me. I'd like you to close your eyes, if you would. We live in a world of distraction, and so closing your eyes helps for you to be focused for a moment. It also gives respect to those around you so nobody's looking. And I want to pray specifically for those who who need endurance, specifically for those who need hope in difficult circumstances. You need God's defense, and you need his deliverance. You, you are under pressure. You are under affliction and tribulation, and, and you just need his grace and his love today. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. No one looking around, just raise your hand. This is an acknowledgement between you and God. On the main floor, on the balcony, there are dozens of hands. Father, I pray right now for a move of your spirit in this room. I pray right now that in the name of Jesus, you would pour out your spirit upon those who are in the midst of trial and tribulation. Those who suffer, those who are walking a path of endurance. Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would give them faith in God, hope in the work of Jesus. You would release the spirit into their lives and circumstances. You would be their deliverer. God, come through your spirit and encourage hope and faithfulness in the mighty name of Jesus. You did it for Smyrna. Do it for Comox. Let them endure in hope and with peace. In Jesus' name, amen.
going into your world on your mission. And in this moment, we declare our dependence upon you. We want to see your message and ministry fill the everyday stuff of life right here in the Comox Valley. We want to see people that are in our neighborhood, in our workplace or at school. We want to see the people of the Comox Valley experience the same kind of anchoring hope that can turn their life around. We want them to know truth. We want them to know your love. But we can't introduce them to this on our own. We need you. We need the power and presence of your spirit, and we need one another. So as we go today, we realize we are sent with your power, and we are sent with one another. We thank you, Jesus, now. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.